Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everybody. We hope you're having a good week so far. So we are very, very excited because we are interviewing somebody today that we have wanted to interview for such a long time. It's the great director, Jack O'Brien. Um, who's directed so many wonderful plays and musicals, including Hairspray and The Full Monty and the um, 1995 revival of Damn Yankees. Um, He is an incredible individual and was so kind and so giving with his time. However, um, we normally do these interviews over Zoom, and uh, there were some technical difficulties, so Jack just joined us by telephone. And unfortunately, I was the only one that was able to be on the call. Kevin was not there, so you're not going to hear Kevin this week. We miss him. but if you join us on Trivia on Saturday, you'll get to hear him sing even more and you get to hear that wonderful voice of his. And even though Jack is joining us by the phone and the audio has that, you know, Charlotte Ray quality that we, we've had previously on the show, please listen to the whole thing. Jack is just marvelous just an absolutely marvelous individual um and was so giving of his time and of course you can pick up a couple of his autobiography called jack be nimble which is available on amazon and it's just fantastic all right please enjoy the wonderful tony award-winning director jack o'brien jack how did you first discover theater I sort of backed into theater i mean i was a child of the 40s and 50s in Michigan, and in that era, the one thing you did not ever want to say out loud is, I'm going into show business. Uh, Nobody in their right mind would have thought you were in your right mind if you said that, even if you were a blistering tap dancer or had the voice of Mickey Rooney or whatever. Uh, You just didn't do that. And so I had this burning desire to show off, I think, more than anything else. But I also had a proclivity for, I learned how to play piano by ear. I studied, but I could play so much better by ear than I could when I read it, read it. Uh, I started writing melodies. I started writing lyrics when I was 10 years old. Um, I, I was sort of, I guess, fated to do it. And when I got to the University of Michigan, uh, I, I had had some fun with my friends in high school doing creative stuff and being in plays and what have you, but nothing serious. And um, a, a fraternity brother of mine uh, had won the role of Mr. Snow in Carousel, and he was going into law school and couldn't do it. And 
after the fact, by uh, they started rehearsals, he dropped out but told the director, I've got this kid who should do it. I mean, he was a football player at the University of Michigan. He was about 325 pounds, and I was the size of a gnat by comparison. And I went in to audition for this part, and I got it. And uh, I had never really sung on stage before. I'd never done anything like that. I didn't even know if I had a high A natural, which you need for Mr. Snow. And I think I probably willed myself to make the noise. <laughs> but I, uh, once I had that bit in my teeth, I'm afraid there was no turning back. And my sophomore year, uh, my father unexpectedly died when I was mm. 18. And so that left me without, um, what do I say, a, a figure of authority or discipline ahead of me, the kind of person you want to please when you grow up, yeah. to whom you would want to not say, I'm going into show business, Dad. Um, and so without that in front of me, here I am, uh, 70 years later, practically, wow. still doing it. And it sounds like your parents were supportive of you being artistic. Is they that were. correct? They were. Um, my father, believe it or not, was sort of fringe show business when he was young. He hung out with a lot of vaudeville people. He was a big mucky-muck in the, uh, the barbershop quartet movement across the country. Um, he was he was hilariously funny uh, and was a kind of toastmaster, the kind mm. of person you hire for your, your convention to warm the audience up. He could do that. Wow. So I think even though he suspected this was madness, he was still sort of proud of the fact that I was trying to do it even then. That's, I mean, that's incredible. What was his day job? My dad was a... He was, he was in packaging engineering. He was a salesman. He had a lot of small businesses. He, he was a, 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 an ideas man. Um, and he and a, a, a friend of his started, went off by themselves and started something called um, um, Sterling and O'Brien, and then it became O'Brien Enterprises. And, and uh, he did very well. He was extremely popular. He was very gregarious. Um, very, very uh, um, uh, socially prominent. Uh, people adored him. Um, and so he did well. Um, he wasn't a rich man, but we were, you know, comfortably in the middle class, upper middle class area. And I didn't know any different. I mean, Michigan in the 50s, you know, it was, it was like being on Mars now. I mean, who knew what was ahead of us? Did you have a desire to, like, get out of Michigan while you were, you know, growing up there and going to school there? Or did you think you could make Michigan your home? I didn't really think about it. I mean, I oh, God, I had, I had a wonderful, I mean, I remember, I think if you want to probe with a cattle prod down in the deep recesses of my my nature, you'll probably find several screaming moments. But I remember myself as being very a very happy guy. Uh, I, I... I loved my life in Michigan. It was a, it was beautiful. My father had a hunting lodge up oh, north, wow. so we would go up in the, in August on his vacation, and he would do. He taught me trout fishing, which I hated, um, and uh, you know. But I grew up in a very in a very sort of permissive, very comfortable, 
very secure atmosphere. So I, and the focus of it finally was the University of Michigan, which, yeah. as an in-state student, of course, I could easily afford. Uh, where I don't think we could have afforded me going uh, to Harvard or Princeton or someplace in the East. That never never occurred to me. And of course, why should it? Michigan's got a beautiful campus there, and uh, I got oh, a great gorgeous. education. Yeah. yeah. How does Ellis Rab come into your life? Ellis was had at that time. He started um, a little repertory company called APA Repertory Company, the Association of Producing Artists. He and his his chums decided they wanted to be their own producers, and they wanted to do a lot of classical work, and they wanted to do you know, things with elevated text and and classics and all the rest of it, which wasn't all that popular in the, in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, of course, met and married the English actress Rosemary Harris. They were married for 10 years. And I think Ellis was so flabbergasted by her beauty and her talent that he really wanted to somehow make a company for her. Mm-hmm. He so believed in her. So they had a little touring group, and I'm telling you, the quality of the people who went out on the road with him, they went to uh, Bermuda and did a little festival. They went to Princeton. They went to the Fred Miller Theater in, in Milwaukee. I mean, they got little tiny engagements. And it was not only Ellis and Rosemary, but it was Will Gear who went into oh, yeah. the Waltons. And it was, it was um, Nancy Marchand and her husband, Paul Sparrow. And it was, um, it was extraordinary. People who became really amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for, they, they, they toured and, were guns for hire, and as a result, they found themselves at the University of Michigan as this sort of resident company. And they, I was a, a God knows I was impossible at that age. I mean, I was doing, playing leads and writing musicals and reviewing music and all sorts of crap and uh, insufferable. And anyway, I reviewed them on their opening night performance in Ann Arbor of the School for Scandal. And to be blunt, it was like the scale was falling from my eyes. It just changed everything. I suddenly saw a completely individual, iconoclastic, um, amazingly creative imagination. Something unlike anything I'd ever seen on the stage before. Uh, it, It was witty and sexy and funny and small and elegant and beautiful. And filled with Scarlatti music and people whirling around behind screens, and I was blown away. And and that was it. I was infected, and nothing mm. would do. But I I actually found myself following them. I mean, I went to New York basically ostensibly to. I was a lyricist. I was a Bob James jazz music musician, and I had been friends for over 60 years. And Bob and I were writing musicals at Michigan. And we went to New York to become a musical theater team. But there was Ellis. And, and I, I was a moth to the flame. I had to be in that presence. I had to figure out what that was. And so I did. What lessons did you learn from him that you still take with you into a rehearsal room today? Well, that's, I have to say, in addition to Ellis, which was oh, yeah. explosive enough, there were 
It was John Houseman. It was Eva Legallian. Mm. It was Alan Schneider. It was Stephen Porter. The directors, there were only five or six of them. But they, uh, they gave me over six years of experience as their assistant. I, I was the only assistant they could afford. So I took notes for all of those people. Oh, my God. And as a result, I learned how to look at the stage through six different sets of eyes. Uh, they didn't replicate each other. They were all very different spirits. But how they spoke to actors, how they respected text. Ellis was a supremely theatrical guy who loved the big gesture, loved big, passionate ideas, doing plays like War and Peace for crying out loud. And, you know, uh, um, Pantagles, Belgian plays that nobody would touch. Uh, he had a big vision, and I was taught not to be afraid, not mm. to be afraid of space or light or or openness. Um, uh, he taught me how to give notes. My God, his note sessions were electrifying. It wasn't just do this, turn there, uh, you drop that line. He fused the company into a philosophic sphere where mm. they were believed themselves to be special. And uh, I did too. Now, when you first came to the city, did you just send him a letter and say, I'm interested in working with you? Or well, like I had been, I knew him in Michigan because I was the, the, the prize pig. I was, you know, they, I was the kid they sent out to the fraternities to, to drum up business for this company because I had a sort of quasi reputation of being doing musical theater and just being mouthy, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, he, he, they realized I was, I had, well, I still do. Uh, fortunately, I have just incredible amounts of energy and you, you don't take credit for that. That's genetic. But I, I would have done anything to make things work for them. So they knew me as a sort of gun for hire. They knew me as a as a, a kid that would go not only for coffee, but uh, to another state if it wasn't the right coffee. And so uh, I I, w I mixed sort of tangentially socially with their company. Uh, I when I was at Michigan, I played bit parts in some of their walk-ons and some of their shows to sort of fill the ranks. So they knew me when I got to New York. And and they, they I was a fun kid. I mean, yeah, I was funny and and I was agreeable and uh, I I I knew how to carry a joke and yeah, it was cool. So uh, they finally it became clear that I wasn't going to go away. And he hired me as his personal assistant. Um and the only assistant they could afford. And I was at that time teaching speech and voice at Hunter College, um, begin the very beginning lower rung of academic. And I didn't have a, I didn't have a PhD, so I was not a likely candidate for a professional career in education. But I could, I could teach. I was fun. Um, I was active. Uh, I took a 50% pay cut to become Ellis' assistant. Wow. Yeah. But I, worth it. 
I was serious, clearly. And I got the goods. By the, by after six years when the company disbanded, and Hausman was a very great supporter of mine by that time, he got me into Juilliard and into the acting company and onto the road with the acting company. And he, he sort of took care of me after Ellis had disbanded the company. And uh, they were all the rewards for my servitude. That is just absolutely incredible. Isn't it uh, great? What, what, was it, what was it like being in the presence of someone like John Hausman? You know, I mean, what what do what was it like watching him work, watching him collaborate, watching him put a story together? Well, John was John was a force of nature. John's gift was producing mm. uh, both film and and I mean he he'd been Orson Welles' famous partner yeah. in Mercury Theater until they had a huge falling out, and Orson Welles at a restaurant in Los Angeles threw a lit can of Sterno at his head. That was the end of their friendship. Um, but, but he came to Ellis's rescue when we were trying to get financing from the Ford Foundation in the, in the early 60s. John loved Ellis. He would direct him at Stratford, Connecticut, along with Bill Ball and Richard Easton and um, oh. a bunch of, you know, uh, uh, Seda Thompson and uh, all that crowd. And so he knew Ellis. And um, he came basically to add fuel to Ellis's business side, although he did direct. And he, he sort of was a kind of a, kind of a distant dramaturg. He, he was, nobody knew Michelle de Gelderode uh, in this country, but Hausman, who was European, in, in his background and in his education, knew about de Gelderode's plays and gave Ellis the role of his life, the role of Panicles, which was the last great role he played in his own company. Yeah. Um, so, so John really wasn't a very good director. I remember he was doing, uh, when I had him come out to the Globe, and I was running the Globe, and he was doing Richard III, and his idea of of directing would say, about bringing the body of the king on stage, bring the stiff to center stage. <laughs> I thought, well, that could have been more happily phrased. <laughs> and it was great. Do you think directing can be taught? Not really, no. I mean, I'm, I'm writing a new book about that sorry, subject because everybody asks me, how do I get to be a director? And, you know, you can study it, but uh, the thing is, it's... I think you have to be a lot of other things before you're a director. I think it's one of the last things one should attempt to be because a director basically is the is the the play's first audience. Hmm. Not only the person who's guiding them, but the person who's watching them, listening to them. And until you know how to synthesize until you respect text and believe that the writer is the person you're clinging to, and that what you're really trying to do is help the actors believe enough to make the audience believe too, that's a complicated formula. Yeah. That's not just directing or blocking or it's psychology, it's spiritualism, it's it's a uh, synthesis. It's you. You become a lot of 
a composite of almost everybody you've admired or liked or learned from. Mm. So, no, I, I think it's a guild. I mean, in yeah. my case, uh, I observed. I sat and took notes for six years. And Ellis, who genuinely loved me, I think, was also, in a paternal way, slightly jealous and suspicious of me. And he was right to be. I'm a killer, let's face it. Mm. Uh, but he didn't necessarily want to give me my own first play. Hausman did. Hausman wanted to put me in the water. He saw I was ready. But I would never be ready for Alice in the way that a father does not want to give the business completely yeah. to his son. And what is the first show that you actually said, okay, I am going to be the director of? How interesting. That really was the second musical I wrote at the University of Michigan. The first musical was a musical that I had made up called Land Ho, which was about Christopher Columbus stealing women into sneaking women aboard, and that's how they found America, through feminine intuition more than anything else. Oh. It was really cute. And at the end of it, um, they sailed into the New York Harbor, so I didn't take myself too seriously. <laughs> but in the second year that Bob James and I were working together was my master's thesis. And I did an adaptation of Ben Johnson's Bartholomew Fair mm. as a musical. And I directed it and choreographed it. In, in Land Ho, I played the lead, of course, wouldn't yes. I? Yeah, you know, but the, but in the second musical, there was just too much to do, and I didn't trust enough other people. <laughs> so I said, "No, I'll direct it and choreograph it," and I did. So that was probably my debut, my my directing debut. Although until I just said that, I don't think I'd actually ever acknowledged that to myself. So um, then I I hung around Ellis for nearly six years for that company, as it grew. I mean, you know, then came Helen Hayes, then came Uta Hagen, then came Nancy Walker. I mean, all these extraordinary people came into APA, and, and you know, I was the assistant and then associate director, so I was in control of the rep. So I put Helen Hayes into You Can't Take It With You as the Grand Duchess because Ellis couldn't be bothered. Um, um, so What's it like directing Helen Hayes? Oh, I loved her. God, I loved her. I, I still to this day call her Miss Hayes. I never called mm. her Helen Hayes. Um, God, she was she was an Irish pity, and she was you know she was a working stiff, and she she said at one point she was sitting backstage. I mean, she was what nearly seventy by that time, I think, and she had three parts in the repertory. She was playing Mrs. Candor in in. Uh, School for Scandal, one of the hardest parts to learn in the world, because it's nothing but jokes. She was playing Signora Frola in, in Right You Are If You Think You Are. And she was playing uh, the mother in a terrible comp compilation of Walt Whitman's poetry. And she said, at, at one point, she was sitting back said, she said, in the height of my career, I played three parts in 12 years. Meaning, two years on Broadway with Dear Brutus, two years on the road, two years on Broadway in Victoria, Regina, two years on the road, two years in Dulcie on Broadway, two years on the road. 
So at the height of her career, she only played three parts in 12 years. And in the APA, she was playing three parts at the same time. She couldn't believe it. I just wondered. What an incredible story. What an incredible person. Did you ever get intimidated? Or, or were you so confident that you thought, I'm, I'm going to put their statuses aside? What an interesting question. I never felt intimidated. Yeah. I, I, I knew enough to be respectful and awed, and I knew that I'd fallen into this huge pot of jam. I mean, I realized that, that no one of my generation had the exposure to all these people mm, yeah, uh, uh, um, for six years. And during which, may I say, because Ellis then went off to direct opera, so I went as his assistant. So when he couldn't do an opera, the producers called me. And so I started directing an opera at that time. I mean, I sort of, now that I look back on it, what the hell was I thinking? Uh, I, I mean, I, I just, I, 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 it's not that I felt confident or that I was that impressed with myself. I sort of, in an odd way, never been impressed with myself. I'm not sure I'm really all that smart, frankly. But I've been lucky to be around the right people and to listen to them and to learn from them. And I think I've got something. I must, because yeah. I'm still doing yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Now, what do you what do you know about directing now that you wished you had known when you were first starting out in this? Well, I think the best one of the best things you can say as a director is, "Gee, I don't know. Let's find out." Mm. You know, a lot of people think you have to know everything, but what you have to do is create a climate in which everything can be observed and participated and experienced. How do you do that? Well, exactly. That's my that's my point. Yeah. It's, take, it's taken a lifetime to let go. I mean, complete control is giving control away. Mm. I I I think maybe only twice in my life have I ever been had a confrontation with someone. Wow. Who, yeah. I I just don't believe in it. Yeah. And I think basically if someone has a problem, I've always felt that if someone is a problem, it's two reasons. Either they're terrified and don't know how to tell you, or they think you're not listening to them. Mm. And I have found over the years that's true. That's great advice. That's Isn't really, it? The, yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I didn't know it. I discovered it. Over yeah. a period of time. That's what I'm saying, you know. Directing is nothing but experience. When you start a project, and, you know, it's the, it's the first day of rehearsal, how does a, a typical Jack O'Brien first rehearsal begin? Or maybe it changes depending on what your production is. No, I get everybody together, and then we laugh. <laughs> well, I like that. Yeah, they do, too. Um, I'm not very intimidating. Or maybe I'm very intimidating. I don't know. I, I can't tell that. But I try to put everybody completely at ease. Um, I want it to be fun. Uh, I think I have a T-shirt that says, I rehearse for a living. <laughs> because I love true. that. Well, it's true. 
That's what I do. I rehearse for a living. So at the end of the day, if I've got somewhere, if we're if we did something together, and I can see that everyone is feeling good about it, uh, I can I could die a happy man after maybe a drink or two. <laughs> uh, I I don't think I don't think it's that mysterious. I think it's you have to create a climate of generosity and wit and joy in which people can do their best work. Mm-hmm. They have to feel they can fail. They have to feel they can try, that you won't make fun of them or embarrass them. You know, if you just think about it, it makes kind of sense. But it's not about you knowing everything. Yeah. It's not about you being the arbiter of taste. It's about making a collection that is different from what any one of those people would be alone Mm -hmm. and thereby richer and more interesting and more effective. Mm. When an actor is auditioning for you, what excites you? Yeah. What indeed. Um, well, I, I'm a great admirer of technique. Mm-hmm. And I love people who are comfortable in their own skin. And I usually try to see if they have a sense of humor. I think, I think two things. I think we underestimate a sense of humor. Yeah. And I also think we are not taught to respect instinct. Mm. I mean, how many times in your life have you said to yourself, I know I shouldn't have done that. I know I shouldn't have stayed. I shouldn't have had that other drink. I knew I wasn't supposed to stay in that room, but I did. Your intellect said, oh, nonsense. Um, Don't be ridiculous. I know what I'm doing. But your gut said, flee and we have to remember we're animals yeah we have we have a great instinct for survival that's how we're attracted to each other because we're comfortable we feel that we're being taken care of Mm. and so i think basically i look for a sense of humor um i look for total relaxation so that I know that they're not somewhere else. They're actually in the moment. Yeah. And then the rest of it's just luck. <laughs> I'm so curious, who makes you laugh? Well, you're doing pretty well so far. Oh, shucks, Jack. Thank you. No, I'll I mean, you know, a lot, I'll, I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, I, I, don't, I know very few people who are having a better time than I am. I have a great, I'm having a lovely time. And I, um, I'm, I'm very lucky because I've had a, a, a very comfortable life, but also I've had a happy life. And yes. I'm a very positive guy. I'm not very dark. I mean, I don't have demons that I know of that are at least getting in the way. I keep them pretty much in the backyard. Yes. Uh, and, and so, no, I, I'm, a lot of people make me laugh. I'm looking for laughter. Have you always had that positive attitude? Apparently, yeah. Yeah. I sometimes worry about it because I think, God, you're not very deep, are you? <laughs> but I don't think that's true. I think I am deep. I just think uh, you are. I, I just think I'm uh, just a very lucky guy. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've spent a lifetime 
doing what I love to do. I don't actually, I have to say, I'm not sure I ever worked a day in my life. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Really? I know exactly what you're talking about. That's a great, that's a great thing to say about your time on Earth. And a rare thing. You know, a rare Very thing. rare. And I really, en- mm. I really enjoyed myself. And I know how to do it. And so I do that. That's important to me. I want us to have a good time. I love that. Whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm curious about um, your note sessions. I've, I've, we've heard from a lot of people that your note sessions are, are just master classes. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. if I mean, that, that's, that's what I hear, and that goes across the board. So what do you – I mean, you talked about this a little bit earlier with Ellis Rapp, which is, you know, it's not simply just – you know, cross here, you drop that line, be angrier here. What, what is your note session? What are your note sessions like? I don't let people in. I don't. Ellis never did either. I mean, one of the reasons I had to work for him was I wanted to see how he worked his magic. Hmm. And I think a lot of people don't understand how important a note session is, how to handle sensitivity, how to handle insight, how to make suggestions without being imperious. Yeah how to let the actor think they discovered it without you fingerprinting it. Mm. Um, and also, I'm having a wonderful time in notes. So it's important for me that everybody's also having a wonderful time. I, I, I'd like to say, basically, I don't really know the answer to that question because I've never been in one of my note sessions. <laughs> I've just done them. And I worked my entire life to feel unedited, not to try to feel self-conscious or apologetic. I make fun of myself a lot. I'm very self-deprecating. I know yeah. that. Uh, that's a good thing to do. But and, no. and if you can laugh at yourself, the actors can laugh at themselves. Of course. And, and it just sort of pervades the room. Of course. I mean, Houseman was not a laugh riot in, in when he came to know. <laughs> that was not his persona. Um, Bill Ball was not that funny, but he could be. Ellis was hilarious. And when you say you don't let anybody in, it's just you and the actors, that's it? it There's no, it's, yeah. You can't. I could have, when I was running the Globe for 25 years, I could have raised a lot of money if I let board members and their families sit upstairs while I directed, because they all wanted to know what it was like. Yeah. But I think that's the mystery of it. Mm. I don't think it's observable. I'm not there to show off. I don't want anyone looking at me or even thinking about me any more than you should be doing the same thing to an actor before they're ready. They have to be completely vulnerable. They have to have access to all their feelings, no matter what they are. And I don't want people, I don't want to be self-conscious. I'm not there to impress you. I'm there to sort of help you. So it's not unlike a priest or a shrink. Mm. You are entrusted with the most private and vulnerable parts of a person's creativity. And you have to be very careful not to abuse that in any serious way. 
good morning, Mama. Liza, darling. We've got to help the boys get behind the curtain. Oh, Broadway's living legends. Oh, it's marvelous. Well, what, what would they like? Some cream of wheat? No, Mama, they want some money. Money? Well, let's send them a great big bag of money. No, all you have to do is go to patreon.com. You know, it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and, and you set up a monthly donation. Money makes the world go around, Mama. Oh, don't I know? Patreon.com. Do it now. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Now, do you do a lot of table work? Yeah. I'm nuts about the table. So, can you, can you let us know exactly how you begin your table work process and what makes effective table work? Well, we sit around, I tell you, you know, uh, the thing is, um, if you just, if we talk about a show, if we talk about a scene, and you read it, and we talk about it, and you say this, and I say that, and then you say, well, what about this? And I say, well, yeah, but there's that. At the end of the day, we've got a lot of stuff there between us. If yeah. we don't talk about it, you get up, and I say, cross to the bar, pick up the drink. But that's just me. That's not you and me. Mm. In other words, blocking is the last thing you should do. Because if you share all the information, this is what the playwright said, this is what critics have said about this, this is the way people have done it before. But what if she's an alcoholic? Did you ever think of that? I mean, I love the idea, by the way. That's a perfect example. Mm. Alcoholism, let's say, is not an invention of the 20th and 21st century. There have always been alcoholics. So you look back in literature and you think, well, who else is a drinker? And in Shakespeare, my theory is everybody who takes poison, probably, is a drinker. Mm. Um, think about Gertrude. Yeah. Second husband, filled with guilt, takes poison at the end. Think about Goneril. Mm. Sees her husband put the old man's eyes out. She's freaked out. She drinks. A lot of people in Shakespeare drink. Yeah. There are, I mean, that's not... And the great lesson of all, which my... my beloved friend Diana Maddox, the dramaturg who worked with me for years at the Globe, taught me, is Iago is a class study 
of so, social uh, psychopathy. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. He's a, so, he's a social psychopath. And when I was preparing my first Othello, she gave me a book called Sun, about a social psychopath in Seattle who murdered 14 women, who was the nicest guy you ever heard about in your life. And the most used word in Othello, probably, is honest. Mm. He's always called Honestiago. So either he's a villain, or everybody in the play thinks he's great. Mm. And the minute you step out of being a villain, you become a plate glass. The minute you can say, I hate the Moor, with no connotation at all, the play becomes called Othello. Mm. So when you, when you take um, a classic, we're going to say classical work, Shakespeare, how much research do you do? Um, or is it, do you go, I'm going to approach this like a new text? Uh, well, yes, I certainly approach it like a new text. I mean, the thing is now, because of my training and because of how, I, how it worked for me, I was delivered with Ellis's luggage to the Old Globe Theater as his assistant in 1969 and directed my first Shakespeare there, which was Comedy of Errors. And Craig Knoll, the inestimable progenitor of that theater, liked me, believed in me, saw me as a likely candidate, and for 10 years employed me. Wow. So by the end of the 70s, I'd done more Shakespeare than anybody in my generation. If you don't want to ask me, how old were you at that time? Oh, God. I must have been, well, 69. I was 30. Wow. Yeah, that's 50 years ago. Did you have any desire that went, once you got there about, you know, maybe being an artistic director or something I'd be interested in doing at some point? Um, because I grew up with those artistic directors. I mean, Ellis yeah. Rabb's best friend was William Ball. So Ellis passed me the bill. And in 1972, I did The Importance of Being Earnest um, out there at, at, at 1971 at ACT for Bill. And then we, he and I became friends. So I was surrounded by these clowns who ran theaters. Houseman, Bill, Ellis. I, I mean, I was, I was in the pen with all those monsters yeah. all the time. So they seemed like normal people to me, you know? I, I didn't really think about it until in 1975, I had done a production of Much Ado out at the Globe starring Ellis and Marion Mercer as my... Oh, wow. Editing. Yeah. Marion and I were in college together, so I knew her. Oh, I know her. I know she was great. She was totally great. Anyway, um, it was really good. And Craig took me into the office, and he said to me something very interesting that really stuck. He said, I don't know what's going to happen with your career, but I think you're probably going to do really well. But I do think you have the kind of personality that can work with a board of directors. Mm. And in which case, you might think about running a theater, meaning his. Nice. <laughs> and, and it was the oddest kind of compliment to be given. Yeah. Not, boy, what a terrific director you are. Boy, that was a fantastic curtain call you just staged. He said, I think you have the kind of personality 
that can work with a board of directors. And boy, did that sink in. I thought, what does that mean? And And how does he know that? And so I began to ask myself, or see myself, I think, in a slightly different light. And I'm going to ask you, what, so now that you've been an artistic director, what does that mean? What, how does an artistic director balance a board of directors? What makes a good artistic director? The first word you want to banish is imperiousness. Okay. You don't want everybody who's raising money for you to think you're a prick hmm. or that you don't consider them. Why? Look at it from the other point of view. Why do people want to be on boards of directors? Because they want to hang out with the artists. Yeah. Because it's fun and glamorous, and who knows what creativity is anyway. And boy, we had such a good time in that play the other night. How do you do that? I can't tell you how many times in my life people say, how do you do what you do? Yeah. So they want, they're curious. Um, we're, we're a kind of, we're a kind of fire around which people gather to hear stories mm-hmm. for warmth and intelligence and wit and community. And so community becomes the big keyword here. It's a two-way street. You give me money, I give you things that I think you would like. Mm-hmm but I don't cram down your throat something you don't want just because I think it's good for you. Now, if I give you that musical, which you and your lovely wife asked for, maybe you'll let me do that Shakespeare. But it's a community situation in which there's mutual respect on both sides. And you learn to communicate by offering them your art. Mm. I think that's probably the secret, don't you? Yeah. I yeah, think that's I what I think Craig realized that I was interested in a dialogue. A dialogue with an audience, with a community, with a state, with a state of mind. And I am. I, I'm very interested in being a piece of human litmus paper for you. What did you learn about the community? Um, in which your theater was located while you were the artistic director? Well, A, it was a Navy town. Hmm. B, it was ultra-conservative. C, it was very sort of special, beautiful, (laughs) sybaretic, glistening on the edge of the Pacific Ocean with one of the greatest climates in America today. What's the problem? Um, I was fascinated to know that since the 30s, they loved Shakespeare. They Mm. grew up, that community, because Craig started that at the Globe in 1936, they did three Shakespeare's in repertory every summer. And I was fond of saying as a fundraiser to people in the community, if you bring your kids to the theater when they're 11, let's say, by the time they go to college at 18, that's, what, nine years of three Shakespeare's a summer? And nine wow. by three is 
what, 27? They've seen more Shakespeare than most people in universities who teach it, it seems. <laughs> it's a very interesting thing that that sun-kissed community grew up loving verse speaking. Mm. And they do to this day. You see, theater is a habit. It's not something that you do. I mean, don't, you have to remember, you are taken to the theater. Nobody wanders mm. into a theater by themselves. Mm. You go into an arcade and play a game. Or you go to a drugstore and buy a soda. But you don't walk into a theater and buy a ticket for Coriolanus. Somebody doesn't take you. And the trick is, if it's your thing, and it is for a lot of people, because the astonishing thing is, living people are in the same room with you, becoming someone else for you. That's a hell of a concept. Yeah. And when it works, and it doesn't always work, when it goes off, and that's very rare, it's a high like nothing else in the world. No film, no, no other form of entertainment can touch it. Mm. So if you happen to be there the night it works, you're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> then it's a drug. Then, then... Well, yes, that's the point. Yeah, you can't get enough of it. No, it'll be interesting to see what happens to us now. Here I was going to ask, yeah. Well, yeah, we don't know. I mean, we won't... This idea of let's go back, we're not going back. We can't go back. I mean, I've been reading, amongst other things, in my time off, amongst the things I read, I've read these divine books of Hilary Mantel, the trilogy, the, the, the uh, uh, Wolf Hall, Bring Up the Bodies. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. And, and The Mirror and the Light, all about Cromwell and Henry VIII. Now, you know, in the summers, Henry VIII would get out of London because who wants to stay in town in the summer? You want to go to the Hamptons or you want to go to Bermuda someplace, right? You want to go to the Jersey Shore. So he did too. But there were, there were pandemics. There were, there were diseases everywhere. So they had to send people out all over to find out where there were no plagues. So, you know, he's, he was going to come to my house, but we've got this little brat plague going on at our, at our neighborhood. So I guess he's going to go to your house instead for six weeks and take everybody he's got in the castle with him. A mixed blessing, to be sure. In other words, this, these kinds of compromises, because there were no vaccinations in those days, were everywhere. And this one will be, too. Yeah. And so, you know, we used to gather together because we were safe. Now, until we're safe again, how are we going to do that? Mm. And how am I going to direct Romeo and Juliet if they can't get together? Yeah. Socially distanced on the balcony. I don't think so. Are you finding ways of, of thinking about how you can use the social distancing in your art? Or are you just saying until we're given the all clear. I don't even want to think about directing anything. Well, I, I'm not going to start making decisions until we, have a, until we know that there's at least the promise of a vaccine on the horizon. Mm -hmm. So how are you keeping yourself occupied 
during this well, time off. Well, I'm talking to you right now, so that, <laughs> that took care of at least an hour. I took care of that, yeah. I, uh, I, I'm on Zoom a lot. I've got a musical I'm working on that we're very excited about. Uh, I'm working on my second book, uh, which I'm steaming toward the end of. I'm learning about myself in isolation. I'm watching the spring. I'm trying to be attentive and compassionate. I don't know. I think this is meant to be an instruction for us all, Mm. as well as an endurance. And I'm trying to look at how many good things out of it I can get without resenting it. I mean, that's that's just a healthy attitude for that. I mean, that's... doesn't always work. I've got better days than others. But so far, I'm okay. I know how to take care of myself. I know how to avoid crowds. I know how to wear a mask. Um, I know how to shop and not get scared. Um, I don't push the envelope. I love by contacting myriad friends and checking up on them. I don't know. I'm, you know, reflection isn't a bad thing to do. Mm. And I've got a lot of thinking to do about what's happened to me, what that means. Could that possibly be of help to anybody? Mm. Uh, I'm sifting through it all, frankly. And it sounds like, though, you're in despite of all of this, even though you're not in the room with your collaborators, you're still able to have creativity. And, oh, yeah. E- yeah, either with others or with yourself through this next book that's coming out. Yeah. Um, wh- when, when do you expect the next book to arrive? I have no idea. Uh, I think I'm hoping I'll have a draft by maybe the end of this month. And then... I, then I have to get it to a publisher and say, do you want to do this? And then I'll have to rewrite it because you have to do that all the time. I don't know. Maybe maybe it doesn't get done. Maybe the writing of it was the point. Mm. I don't know. I'm I'm trying not to think about that. I'm just trying to be clearer and more candid and more honest with what I'm talking about. That's I mean, my job. That is a full. <laughs> that's that's a full time job if you can do it for two hours. My God, you've you've done something incredible. I'm so curious about your relationship with writers. Um, you've you've been able to work with the best in the industry. How does your what is the ideal director writer collaboration for you? Um, I, I think you don't want to rewrite the play. I think you love the play. I love writers. I, I, they fascinate me. I've written myself. I've done. Oh yeah. I've written my own things, and 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 I know how difficult that is. So I have great respect for somebody who cranks out a play or a musical or an opera or anything. Um, and I think they want it to be delivered. So I think my job then is to get out of the way to try to communicate as best I can what the writer wants. I mean, when you're talking about Tom Stoppard, good luck. (laughs) But, I mean, Tom trusts me, and we've been very successful, so I guess it must be okay. I guess we're clear enough with each other that I'm not screwing him up 
or irritating him too much. <laughs> and sometimes that's what it is. Do you, and do you like having the writer in the room with you? Oh, God, yes. In the case of Stoppard, um, who can be very rude, not because he is rude, but because he's so securely into what he's doing, mm-hmm. he can say impossible things to actors. You wouldn't believe it. But I insisted when we worked together that he gives notes first. Oh. Because, because do you really want to be in a room with Tom Stoppard and not hear what he has to say? No. No, of course you want to hear what he has to say. Now, if he says it bluntly, I can pick up the pieces and put you back together. Uh, I've said to him many times, Tom, do you know what you just said to her? He said, what? And I would say, well, blah, blah, blah. He said, I never said that. I said, yes, you did. That's why she's crying over there right now. He, he doesn't really see that as being rude. It's just true. And, it's, it's, and because I can make it funny to the company and to him, it works perfectly. So I, he gives the notes, and then I jump in if I have to, and then I give my notes afterwards. Well, you're right. I mean, if you're going to have a genius in the room, you, you want well, to hear the genius. You want to yeah. do you want to do a play of Tom Stoppard when he's sitting there and all you hear is me? I don't yeah. think so. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And w- would you tell a little about um, your relationship with uh, you know Terrence McNally? Well, Terrence and I, God bless him, him and God bless his soul. Um, he's so he was so naughty. He was such a he had the wickedest sense of humor, and and he was like a wicked Irish elf. And and we were like two naughty schoolboys. I mean, um, he was. I got to tell you, Terrence was no fun to work with. Yeah, most writers aren't, by the way. Yeah. They're gr- they're very grim in rehearsal because they know what they meant and you're not you're in the way you and the actors are not are different from what he meant enough to make him nervous mm. and the next thing you're going to say is can I cut that word <laughs> so they're not particularly happy in rehearsal um, they need to know that you are their champion. They need to know that they can trust you, that you will not betray them, and that you that what they have entrusted to you is as sacred to you as it is to them. And Terrence didn't always like my choices, either did Tom. Um, but when push came to shove, I stepped away from the car. I did not have to be right. I just wanted another job. Hmm. And the idea of, you know, being their their champion is fantastic. When you want a rewrite, do you say, you know, this should be A, or do you start a conversation asking questions that hopefully will lead them to that rewrite, the same way you do with an actor's choice? Well, when we were doing the Australian production of The Full Monty, Tom came down to Australia to do a lecture. And he and I were preparing the Coast of Utopia. And we were doing work when we sit down and read through the scene and we discuss it. 
and I say, you know, what's that mean? And he would tell me. Um, and I would say, finally, when we in that particular instance, I don't get it. Said, what do you mean? I said, I don't understand what that's. I do not understand that entire speech. Then he would go back and say it. I said, I still don't, I don't think it's necessary. And he would say, but it's what I meant. And I would say, but Tom, I don't get it. I do not understand what you're saying. And he would say that I haven't written it correctly. Mm. And he'd go back and make it twice as long, usually. <laughs> but in doing so, clarify what he meant. If I don't understand it, I can't say to you as an actor, just suck it up. Yeah. I can't do that. You have to, you're, you're out there on the fragile wing of belief, and you mustn't be distracted with, uh, with any insecurity mm-hmm. in order to fly. So my job is to help you understand that so you're free. I love that. This has been, I mean, such an absolute pleasure. I, I can't even tell you how much I appreciate you taking time out to talk. Oh, I adored it. I adored um, it. Nothing more fun than talking about yourself. <laughs> and, and, if you, and if you may, Jack, if, if, you, if I may bore you with an anecdote very quickly, um, I've always wanted to tell you this. When I was in college, um, I, was, I, I grew up in L.A. I was doing theater out in L.A., um, and I was feeling unsure if I could make this a career path for myself. And I flew to New York, and I saw the matinee of the Full Monty. And I thought to myself, it does not get any better than this. And then that, and then that evening, I saw uh, one of the previews of Hairspray. And I oh thought, my to God! Me, and I thought to myself, if anyone asked, I could, I could die happy <laughs> having, having I, I reached musical theater Nirvana twice, <laughs> and that was, and that is because of you. I've waited almost twenty years to tell you this. Oh, how delightful! Been. I've never heard anybody who had that particular day. That's extraordinary. I did, and I want to thank you so much for giving me a career in this business. Oh, you're you're more than welcome. I'm I'm sorry to be responsible, but I'm happy <laughs> I'm happy that you had a good time. Yeah, I did too. I, good. It shows. Very fun. Thank you, Jack. Take care. Please stay safe. Okay. Thanks for inviting me, Rob. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was batty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.